Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast, brought to you by Advisorpedia. In this series, we interview innovators from across the financial services industry to help you understand who they are, what they do, and why that matters to you and your clients. And now, please join your host, Doug Heikinen. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. 2024 has kicked off to bring us a world that changes daily. To shed some light on some important themes that are on the minds of investors as we move forward into this year, we have Matt Berger, the Vice President of Client Investment Strategies at Lincoln Financial Group. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Before we look forward, let's look back a little. If I'm an investor, how should I feel about the markets last year? Well, if if you owned financial assets, how can you not feel great about 2023? We had this broad rally in asset prices around the globe. We saw volatility fall like a rock for most of the year. Matter of fact, the VIX actually finished at its its lowest level since 2019. So when you take this combination, high returns with low volatility, I mean, that's the recipe for an absolute dream for any investor. Now, if you take it totally objectively, last year's 26% total return for the S&P 500 was incredible. But I think there's two factors that have investors feeling even better as we close the book on 2023 and look forward to this year. First, it's that expectations for 2023 entering the year were about as low as you can get. And it makes sense why, right? We were coming off the, one of the worst years for U.S. stocks in a while, matter of fact, since 2008, and the worst year ever for U.S. core bonds. So even balanced investors, I mean, we all really took one on the chin in 2022. I remember seeing a Bloomberg article towards the end of 2022, and it said that for the first time in at least 20 years, forecasters on average were projecting a negative yearly return for the S&P 500. And because so much of how we feel about things, and I think this really applies to all walks of life, including investing, of course. It has to do with the results or the experience we get relative to our expectations. So to get a banner year after expecting really nothing, logically should have investors feeling feeling really, really good. The second reason has to do with recency bias. The S&P ended 2023 extremely strong. It was actually a nine-week winning streak. And if that sounds like a long time, it's because it is. It's actually the longest consecutive weekly winning streak since 2004. Now, on the fixed income side of portfolios, though, the ride wasn't nearly as enjoyable. You know, a large portion of the year was actually spent in negative total return territory, but a late bond rally actually pushed U.S. core bonds to a solid 5.5% return. There were probably some, though, that felt a little bit left out in 2023. Despite the strength that we saw in equity markets, investors were pouring in droves into money market funds. Now, this by itself, not a bad thing, if it's done for the right reasons, of course. I think we all recognize cash is an important part of any portfolio to help fund short-term goals like an emergency fund or a down payment. And it's wonderful to get 5% yield on those assets, to get a 5% yield, excuse me. But when investors make the choice... And that's the key, right? And it's a choice that's so often driven by emotions and in the moment probably feels so right. But that then they make that choice to park capital that's earmarked for long-term needs, like retirement, for example. When they decide to put that in cash, it can result in them missing out on some of the strongest days, months, and years. And, and unfortunately, really contribute to putting 
those, those longer term goals in jeopardy. We almost certainly saw some of that last year, but those that, that really tuned out the noise and stayed the course are feeling pretty good right now. One more thing about 2023, the economy was really resilient and that's not really being talked about. Can you address that? Yeah, it, it was really pretty incredible. And I think there's a lot of similarities to the, the story we just talked about, right? In regard to expectations versus results. Uh, at the start of the year, there, there were a few outliers, but if you look at economists broadly, for the most part, they were all in agreement that rising interest rates and the Fed tightening would, would cause both the economy and corporate earnings to slow. Uh, there was just this incredibly high level of groupthink around the Culver recession. We saw it uh, each and every day, just all of us in the financial media. You turn on the news, it was recession, recession, recession. Um, it was kind of hard not to get caught up in it. Frankly, it literally became the most anticipated recession in history. Um, of course, we know now in retrospect, it ended up being the most anticipated recession that, that never came, at least for now. And like you mentioned, the economy held up surprisingly well, I think even by the standards of those that were uh, a bit more optimistic. So 2023, it, it really felt like about as close to a best case scenario for the Fed in their fight against inflation. The, the typical playbook, right? it would dictate that in order to move meaningfully towards their goal on inflation, they'd have to inflict some damage to the economy and the jobs market, some, some meaningful damage, frankly. But instead, you know, what we kind of saw throughout the year is that inflation fell in a somewhat orderly fashion, while the labor market held strong. You know, we're still near historically low levels of unemployment, despite tacking on in 2023 another 100 basis points of tightening to the 400 plus we saw in 2022. And you know, all the while, while this was going on, the, the US consumer took rising rates in stride, just continued to spend, uh, which yeah, I think we all know is critically important to our economy, given that two-thirds of, of US GDP is consumption. I do think it's important, though, to acknowledge the, the experience in today's economy has become somewhat bifurcated and it, based on certain factors. Like you, you take uh, income level, geographic location, uh, or even things like whether or not this particular individual happened to lock in a low mortgage rate uh, and therefore have this, this lower fixed living expense. But you know, if you look at the data in aggregate, what it says and the story it tells is that consumer balance sheets are still in really, really good shape and, and household debt servicing ratios um, still remain below pre-pandemic levels despite uh, the increase in rates. So I think the, um, the natural question is why, right? Why the resiliency? And there, there's probably one of dozens of reasons that we could talk about. But the one that always really jumped out to me, it, it's, something, it's something really that goes back to the fact that the seeds were planted for this years ago during the pandemic, and it's when both American consumers and corporations, this is both on the individual side and the business side, really smartly took advantage of historically low interest rates to substantially lower their debt service burden well into the future. So you think about on the consumer side, you know, for folks like you and I, this meant locking in low mortgage rates, typically over 30 years you know, on their home. And if you look at the data, uh, roughly about 60% of outstanding mortgages have an, a, an origination rate of 4% or less. And given that housing is most Americans' largest single expense, and this has really gone a long way toward 
uh, insulating a lot of Americans from, from truly feeling the impact of higher rates. Um, and similarly, on the cor- corporate side, many of the biggest businesses in America refinanced their debt. They, they pushed, they lo- excuse me, they lowered their interest expense and pushed maturities well on to the next decade. While at the same time now, um, you know, they're earning you know, 5% plus on their cash. So that's a nice recipe um, you know, for financial security. On a whole, in terms of the resiliency, it looks like it's going to carry over into 2024. Uh, but there's definitely some pockets, you know, portions of the economy that are that are showing signs of slowing. Um, but I caveat all of that. We talk about this resiliency with the fact that um, there's always this chance, and this 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 chance always exists out there that there could be some sort of exogenous shock that you know ultimately changes that picture overnight. So what do you see as the biggest risks to the economy in 2024? Yeah, so you know, I think I, I painted a pretty rosy picture there, and I think there's a lot to be excited about you know, about the economy. Um, and as a, as a result of that, as a whole, you know, the odds of a soft landing have, have absolutely increased over the last 12 months. But uh, it's important to recognize it's not a foregone conclusion. There's still risks out there that are worth monitoring. So let me take a step back, and uh, I've got, I think I've got a, a really good way to look at this. Um, how we think about our value proposition to the financial professional community here at Lincoln, uh, being a manager of managers is we want to bring the best thought leadership and insights from our network of asset management partners directly to financial professionals and their clients. And one of the many ways we do that uh, is each quarter we ask a group of these asset managers a series of survey questions, really just to gauge their stance on uh, things like the economy, markets, and then we pull that together, package them into client-facing content through our, our market intel exchange. Uh, the reason I mention all of that is this particular quarter, we asked this exact question. And we asked these partners to rank what they believed were the biggest risks to the economy as we enter 2024. So I'm going to go through the, the top three here. All, all three fairly related. Um, they don't necessarily have to, but there's a scenario as you walk through these that they could even happen as some sort of domino domino effect. So number one, it's persistent inflation. And we've we've talked about the economic strength. Well, look, there's a scenario where where the economy stays a bit too high. And the steady disinflation that we've seen over the last 18 months uh, stalls in that three to four percent range. And, And I think in this scenario, sticky inflation would ultimately mean the Fed would have to keep rates higher over longer than anticipated. And that could really be a big contributing factor to the prospects of you know, an earlier end to the expansion that, than would have otherwise been thought. Um, and then ultimately a repricing of, of assets as a result of that. Uh, I think the second risk is one that we've been talking about for a long time, and it's that the lagged effect of restrictive monetary policy, so the lagged effect of higher rates, will finally take hold. We know that you know once rates go up, the cost of capital goes up. Uh, consumers and businesses, and they don't just change their decision making or their spending habits on a dime. It, it takes a little bit of time, right? They need to adjust to the new reality, change their behavior, and and I think this is especially true when it comes to the lag, when a vast majority are so turned out, like we just talked about, and locked into these fixed rates on their debt. Um, that said, nearly two years. Since the first hike, you probably would have thought that this lag defect would have taken hold at this point, but at a large scale, I mean, it really hasn't. There, there, there are some signs we're getting closer, though. Um, number one, 
the job market is is certainly one of them. So it is absolutely still strong. Uh, but if you start to look under the surface, there there are some signs of weakening. Like for example, we we've begun to see monthly job additions establish a fairly consistent downward trend. Um, and when you look at that that trend, if that should continue, meaningful deterioration there. I mean, that could be a major catalyst for weakness across the economy. Uh, another can be seen in uh, things like delinquency rates on credit cards. So when you look at the amount of American consumers that are delinquent on their credit card debt, uh, it's risen now to above pre-pandemic levels. And this one in particular, I think, really matters, given it's also coming at a time when the average interest rate on credit card debt is hitting, hitting an all-time high. It's over 21%. Uh, right now, if you believe it or not. And the, the third most common risk in the survey um, was a reduction in consumer spending. So consumers pulling back on their spending, uh, which is important. You know, spending has, has played an enormous role in catalyzing economic growth. So if consumers were to pull back on their spending, say because of one of many factors like dwindling excess savings, uh, student loan payments, credit card debt, uh, this would likely cascade to corporate earnings and then you know, ultimately the job market. Um, I do think it's important, I always mention in this, to remember that the biggest risks to the economy are so often the ones that don't really make these lists and are either hiding in plain sight or things that we just could never have predicted. Um, so if you think about things that are out there right now that could fall into this category, the thing that comes to mind immediately for me would be um, the potential for an acute rise in geopolitical tensions and something of that nature um, could mean that we're looking past all three of these things into to something you know ultimately brand new that, that happens to be um, the catalyst for for economic weakness. The Fed had a big impact on markets in 2023. What's the potential for a pivot from them? Well, the short answer, a, a resounding yes, and this is really driven by the strong disinflationary trends we've seen. And it's really giving the Fed some, some breathing room to begin to think about normalizing rates. For the most part, there, there's two sources that many investors will hear about when it comes to projecting or prognosticating the path for the future Fed funds rates. So here's where we stand on each today. The first one is the FOMC's quarterly summary of economic projections. We often hear this referred to as the dot plot. Well, in their December release, they indicated to market participants that three 25 basis point cuts are likely this year. The timing of that is still, still a little unclear. This particular data set is only updated four times a year, so we won't expect to see another meaningful update here until March. On the other hand, though, market participants have been more aggressively pricing in cuts via the futures market. Now, this particular set of data, it changes very dynamically, probably to be different tomorrow than it is today, but when I last recently checked, the expectation was that the first cut will arrive this May, and then we'll get a 25 basis point cut at every single meeting for the rest of the year. So that brings you up to six 25 basis point cuts for 2023, or roughly double what the Fed is messaging. Now, the expected path of rates, that's going to be very interesting to watch throughout the year. But either way you slice it, both the Fed themselves, as well as market participants, both seal cuts are coming this year. It's just a matter of when and how many. And the answer to that is likely to come down to how the economy holds up. If the data were to decline more rapidly than perhaps the Fed is, is anticipating, that four to six cut range like market participants are currently expecting 
could absolutely be in play. We're now officially into an election year, and it's going to be wild. What's the overall potential impact of this race on the markets? Yeah, look, wild is a great word to use. There's probably so many, so many other adjectives that could be appropriate to describe the ride we're likely in for this year. Uh, I'm going to steer clear of the policy side and, and really just focus on what history can teach us about investing in election years. The biggest message I think we have holistically for investors is a pretty simple one. It's that people care about politics, markets generally don't. So if you go back all the way to 1928, there have been 24 different election years during that time. All I'm sure were pretty turbulent in their own way. Uh, now, if we look at stocks and, and we're measuring stock performance using the S&P 500, they were positive in 20 of those 24 years. So that's an 83% hit rate. And what's even more interesting, three of the four down years came during times of pretty major crisis. You know, 1932, during the Depression, 2000, the dot-com bubble, um, and then 2008 during the global financial crisis. Now, over that same time frame, if you just count all of the years, right, not just ones where an election occurred, but all of the years, the S&P 500 was positive 73% of the time. So in other words, and I think this is a really, really tough stat for a lot of folks to believe, historically, your odds of, the odds of stocks generating a positive return is actually higher in election years than non-election years. But it, it doesn't come without a price. Election years tend to be pretty bumpy, especially, especially early in the year. Um, see, elections tend to bring with them. I think the reason for that is they bring with them one thing that markets dislike more than anything else, and that's uncertainty. So on average, the experience in election year, what we tend to see is that when uncertainty is at the highest, and that's typically the first five months of the year with primaries in full swing, uh, what we tend to see is a rise in volatility and a, a bit of choppiness in markets. Now we're pretty firmly in this zone right now, uh, and will be for a handful of months. However, yeah, as we tend to move into the summer in these years, and, and then even furthermore, subsequently, once the results are in after election day in November, that cloud of uncertainty is is lifted, and it, it's really regardless of which party wins, the number should. And, and markets tend to move higher. Uh, really through the first half of even the following year. Now, I know that um, I'll make one kind of broader comment on this. I know, especially when political rhetoric gets into full swing this year, uh, it's going to elicit all kinds of emotions from investors. And you know, I think a lot of us will likely be fighting every instinct in our body to act on them with our portfolio decisions. But always remember, we've been here before. We will be here again. Uh, history truly shows it's best to ignore the noise, stay focused on your long-term goals in a diversified portfolio because short-term market reactions are, are just way too hard to predict, especially in election years. I'm going to close with the same question I asked at the beginning, but hoping you can look forward to 2024. As an investor, how should I feel about the markets in general for this year? Excited, apprehensive, wait and see? What do you think? Uh, yes, all, all of the above. I mean, I think investors are, are generally feeling pretty good so far in 2024. The, the vibes are high, as, as they should be coming off last year's performance by both markets and the economy. Sentiment data is on the rise. Professional fund managers as a whole here in January are overweight equity uh, for what I believe is the third straight month. I think the real interesting question is, is should investors be feeling this good? 
And again, as a whole, you know, I think the, the answer there is a yes. You know, as we've talked about throughout, there's just a lot to be positive about right now. But the true answer to that really depends on what kind of investor you are. There's a nuance there, right? Are you a trader or are you a long-term investor? Now, if you're a trader who has a short time horizon, it's a little bit more of a wild card, right? It's not as cut and dry. And it wouldn't be surprising, I think, to anyone to see a bit more volatility here in 2024. It could be one of many reasons. We've had an incredible run already. Uh, the S&P was up 16% in the last nine weeks of 2023 alone, which by itself would have been a great year's worth of gains. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean stocks can't continue to go up. But as we know, it very rarely happens in a straight line. You know, we, we typically get some of those consolidations along the way. Um, you know, also, you think about the, the, the economic data we've seen thus far, it may have contributed to uh, a bit of a soft landing, getting it at least somewhat priced in. Uh, over the last several months. So any potential signs of deviation from that, you think about a deterioration in economic data, um, some sort of exogenous shock that we're not necessarily discussing now, um, those things could change sentiment pretty quickly uh, and thus cause assets to reprice a bit. And you know, that lastly, as we mentioned, to go along with all of that, uh, it's an election year, which is a wild card in itself. And, and those have historically brought with them uh, additional volatility. You know, on the other hand, one, one thing to consider, and I think this is more of a, a potential positive for asset prices, is the incredible amount of cash on the sidelines. About $6 trillion were in money market funds as of the end of the year. So in a scenario where the Fed were to cut rates, you know, especially if it was relatively quickly, that erosion of cash returns could encourage flows out of cash uh, into things like risk assets or maybe even longer dated bonds. And that could provide additional tailwind to asset prices, potentially even help cushion any weakness uh, if those cuts were to, say, uh, be as a result of economic weakness. Now, if you're a long-term investor, which I personally am, and I believe most of our customers are, um, and I recognize this is incredibly boring, but you shouldn't care about any of it. You know, outside of the fact that it's interesting and perhaps fun to talk about, um, but you should always be excited to put money to work as a long-term investor, whether stocks are going up, whether they're going down, or whether they're going sideways. Uh, it really shouldn't be basing any of our investment decisions on what we think might happen in the next week, month, or even year. You know, Yogi Berra actually has one of my favorite all-time quotes, not the person you'd think you get a quote from, but uh, he once said, predictions are hard, especially about the future. Now, I guarantee you, he was not talking about investing when he said it, but it's so applicable and he's so right. I mean, you just take last year as a great example, right? In an industry of very smart people, extremely intelligent people, um, only a select few, very few, may have actually seen that coming last year. That's why for most of us, we're better served taking the boring route. You know, tune out the noise and ensure our portfolios and our overall financial plans are prepared for a wide range of outcomes to sustain us for the long term. Matt, that was just fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. To learn more about Lincoln Financial Group, please visit lincolnfinancial.com. Please follow us for timely updates on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Advisorpedia. For everyone at Advisorpedia, our producer, Julia Smolin, our engineer, Tori Miller, and the Power Your Advice podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen.